I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Consminds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 30, we read The Social Animal by David Brooks from 2011. David Brooks was born in 1961 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where his father was working on a PhD at the University of Toronto. He spent his early years in the middle-income housing development of Stuyvesant Town in Lower Manhattan. His father taught English literature at New York University, while his mother studied 19th century British history at Columbia University. Brooks grew up in a Jewish family, but he attended Christian schools and Christian summer camps as a child. Many of his columns at the New York Times touch on religious themes, though his own religiosity remains his own guarded secret. When he was 12, his family moved to the affluent suburbs of Philadelphia. In 1983, Brooks graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in history. After college, he worked as a police reporter in Chicago. He then interned at the National Review under the great William F. Buckley, after which he spent nine years at the Wall Street Journal. His last post at the journal was as op-ed editor. Prior to that, he was posted in Brussels covering Russia, the Middle East, South Africa, and European affairs. Brooks joined the Weekly Standard at its inception in September 1995, He later joined the New York Times as a columnist in 2003, where he has remained a mainstay ever since. He's a frequent analyst on NPR's All Things Considered and the Diane Rehm Show. Beyond the New York Times, his articles have appeared in many other major news outlets. He often writes on questions of ethics, morality, and culture, and of course, politics. Brooks has been married twice and has three children. I'll tell you what really stands out for me about his biography is that he worked at the National Review, the Wall Street Journal, and the Weekly Standard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He, the kind of the trifecta of the, maybe the most, the strongest conservative voices throughout the 90s. And that's really interesting before going to the, um, the New York Times. Okay, so this is a different kind of book. Uh, yeah, very different for than sure. anything that I've ever read. And you and I talked about this beforehand. It's just, it's really different. So it's, it's a book of fiction, but he, he uses this fictitious story about this couple, Harold and Erica, as a vehicle to convey some social science research and, and share his own political philosophy, but it's kind of sprinkled in throughout the book. It, but it's not a novel. So it's, it's fiction, but it's not really a novel. It's, it's not really an attempt at Dostoevsky for him. It's more just kind of a vehicle that he uses to talk about some of the stuff that he hits up during, you know, in his, uh, in his op-ed articles. Kind of reminded me of, uh, the education of Henry Adams, but in a, hmm. it's, but it's not specifically about the author the way that Henry Adams was writing about himself. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, it, I've, I've actually honestly found the, the format cringe inducing at times, but it, it, the points he's conveying are standard. They're, it's not weird. 
the points he's conveying. It's just the, the method was a little off-putting, especially because we're used to reading. Uh, I mean, this is the first one that actually had a sort of fiction approach of the 30 episodes we've we've dealt with. So mm-hmm. I think going into it, I was thinking it would be another book like like Ross Douthat and Rahan Salam's book, you know, sort of a modern conservatives take on the party, which, or, or, or the movement it is, but then it's, it's got, it's, it's through this lens of a typical couple of a certain class of a certain part of American life. And, you know, it, it works, but it's a little weird. Yeah. I agree with all that. So he has these two characters and honestly, we're not going to spend a lot of time on them because it's, not super interesting, but we got the book is about these two characters, Harold and uh, Erica, who ultimately get married. Harold is kind of a passive guy, kind of a jog in high school, kind of lazy, but he's relatively intelligent. He ends up working at a historical society as a as an editor of some sort, and later becomes a fellow at a Washington D.C. think tank. You know, he struggles with alcoholism. He wanted kids, but his wife was too busy with her ambitions, and he himself didn't have much ambition. Erica is a minority, half Hispanic, half Asian. She had a pretty difficult upbringing, pretty pretty bad household. She builds a company that ultimately fails, and she joins another company and ultimately rises to become CEO. Later, she's invited to join a presidential campaign and... When that guy becomes president, she becomes deputy chief of staff and then later commerce secretary. She's really driven and ambitious, you know, workaholic, works all the time. She doesn't really give much attention to the needs of others. And later she kind of disregards Harold's desire to have children. When, they're, when their marriage starts to disintegrate a little bit, she has an affair. So these are kind of 2D characters, though, mm-hmm. two-dimensional characters. So it's not like throughout the book you're like oh geez come on Harold I know you can do better you just kind of like I mean it's just kind of like watching you know somebody telling a story about you know your, your brother-in-law's buddy who did whatever you know it's like okay sure yeah it's kind of like a fable yeah. the characters are there yeah to make a point you know it's it's not about like deep character study or like complex you know construction of a, of a fiction narrative it's like this guy's here to make this point and here it is yeah. you know and that you know again that's that's fine, but you know, if you're looking for a work of, it's there to tell. It's there to tell a story. Yeah. So, uh, well, l- l- let me read this little introduction thing just to give you a sense for it. It says, "This this is the very beginning of the introduction. This is the happiest story you've ever read. It's about two people who led wonderfully fulfilling lives. They had engrossing careers, earned the respect of their friends, and made important contributions to their neighborhood, their country, and their world. And the odd thing was." They weren't born geniuses. They did okay on the SAT and IQ tests and that sort of thing, but they had no extraordinary physical or mental gifts. They were fine looking, but they weren't beautiful. They played tennis and hiked, but even in high school, they weren't star athletes and nobody would have picked them out at that young age and said they were destined for greatness in any sphere. Yet they achieved this success and everyone who met them sensed that they lived blessed lives. How did they do it? They possessed what economists call non-cognitive skills which is the catch-all category for hidden qualities that can't be easily counted or measured, but which in real life lead to happiness and fulfillment. And so then he talks a little bit about how they had good, good character and this sort of thing. So this is how he sets the stage. So throughout the book, as he's kind of, we'll ha- you know, he'll have several pages of 
what's happening with Harold and whatever. And then he'll have about two or three pages of stuff that kind of explains, I guess, some you know, psychology. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it's pretty shallow, though, to be honest with you. So, yeah. But his, his main point, his main interest is uh, how the unconscious system works and how it's not your super intelligence, but you, how your unconscious, I guess, connects with the unconscious of others and uh, kind of a, builds your social capital in that way. What's strange to me about it, though, is it doesn't really make that point. I mean, it just kind of, he, he, he hits on these more or less factoids. Mm-hmm. You know, these, he, he'll give us some fast facts. Like, I wrote a couple down, like, on courtship, when the, when the two of them are dating, you know, they, 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 you know, they meet in a coffee shop and blah, blah, blah. And then he'll have a page where he says, words are the fuel of courtship. Other species win their mates through a series of escalating dances, but humans use con- conversation. You know, decision-making is an inherently emotional business. Emotion assigns value to things and reason can only make choices based on those valuations. The key to a well-lived life is to have trained the emotions to send the right signals and to be sensitive to their subtle calls. So on the one hand, you're kind of like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. But Mm -hmm. then, but then it, but then it, you know, it's kind of capped with the key to a well-lived life is to have trained the emotions to send the right signals to be sensitive to their subtle calls. So he makes the argument that these, uh, unconscious uh, signals are what you know makes up a life, uh, but he never really says like how do you. He keeps saying you need to train your subconscious as if it's like a, you know, a pep, a puppy. Yeah, but it doesn't really say how you do that. Or and, no. in, and at many <laughs> at many junctions, he'll even say you can't do that. So yeah, so it's <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure what a, the point of it all is. I mean. It, it occasionally made me think of how I think it was uh, in Carlson's work last week. We talked about some people want to use psychology to sort of as, a, as like a scientific replacement for religion. And that sort of seemed like that was what was going on here. Like the ineffable was expressed by the subconscious, the psych- the psychological angle. It's like, Well, maybe that's true, but he doesn't really give us any evidence or, or way of testing it. Or like you said, a way of improving ourselves along those lines. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, maybe, but it does get to his point that, that a, lo- a lot of what he's talking about is connections and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, um, as he does get into the policy type discussions, it's the, uh, the connections that he sees as once being central to people's lives have been lost. And he talks about like the, in, that individual individualism produced the leftist revolution of the 60s and also the, the right-wing revolution of the 80s you know we're, we're both driving at individualism from different angles um both the hippies and the and the uppies i guess however you want to describe the sort of like uh reagan market revolution of the 80s he sees it as a mirror image of the leftist uh you know hippie sexual revolution of the 60s we're both driving away from community towards individualism, towards, you know, self-expression and, and more freedom. And both these things he sees as having degraded the bonds of community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so all these kinds of connections that he has his main characters making or not making in life are the things that it's now harder for a lot of people to make. And as society kind of, as community fades to the background within society, I think Brooks sees it as sort of the, the structure that made those, helped us make those connections and, and set up 
a world where those connections were necessary necessarily made you know just because of how we lived that falls away and as we're more animated by radical individualism whether it be the leftist version or the rightist version uh it makes it harder for some people to make those connections and that's i i think that's his real vision of what's going wrong in society Mm -hmm. yeah that sounds right but uh, to beat a dead horse a little bit, I mean, it's it's still just kind of a funny way to do it because mm. that, that's a good point to make. And, uh, you know, Nisbet makes it much better, you know, to me. And you, you, I mean, maybe I'm being overly critical and I shouldn't, but it just felt so autobiographical. You know, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about his, his personal life, but it just really felt like, you know, basically with Harold and Erica, what he was trying to say is you can't find happiness through your career. You can't find happiness through have these uh, prestigious positions and prestigious friends and mm-hmm. living in these cool places and that kind of thing. And it's, which is also great, always, uh, you know, great points to make. I agree, but it just really felt like he was almost saying like, this is what I did. And, and I, I just don't feel as happy as I think I should. Since I'm <laughs> yeah. So famous. Yeah. I think <laughs> That's right. what came through to me. I don't know mm-hmm. if it did to you. But. Yeah, no, it definitely felt that way. It's a, sort of a, like a cautionary tale almost. I've heard him say before that he didn't have a lot of friends. And so you could see how he, and he just wrote that other book uh, about the two mountains or whatever. And I've heard him talk about that. And just really, I I don't want to be critical of him because we all have our own issues. Like I'm not saying I'm so happy and successful or anything, but but you you do, it does come across as kind of like, man, I got all this really cool stuff. You know, I'm pretty wealthy. You know, I've, you know, Everybody knows who I am. I get this New York Times on TV all the time, but I really don't have a lot of friends and I'm not as happy as I think I should be. And it's a great point to make. It really is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it's something that I I chat with my wife about this, you know, now and again, because the kids can be a pain in the butt, but then it's kind of like, well, this is an investment for the future as well. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) these are going to be our friends in the future when it's hard to make friends. (laughs) Yeah. That's something every parent has to talk about from time to time to themselves or to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's, maybe it's kind of to, uh, I think Charles Murray talked about this maybe about how people like Brooks are in that managerial top class of people who are almost like uh, an untouched, uh, like a Brahmin class at the top of, of society, but he's also not as rich as the people he hangs with. And I think maybe that kind of gets to mm, him too, yeah. you know, cause you're a big yeah. New York times columnist, famous guys on TV, but if he's going to Davos or something, hanging out with billionaires, I mean, maybe that, maybe that bothers him. You know, I mean, I, I, I could see if you were, if you thought you were really smart and had done great for yourself, but everybody you hung out with was way richer than you, that might get to you after a while, you know, they say, Hey, why don't, mm. why don't I have yeah, that? Sure. That guy's no better than me, you know? So maybe that's part of what's going on here because it, it, but it's, it's, it's a way of exploring the kind of lostness of a lot of people in, in society. And that's, that, it, it's, it's, it's an approach. Um, yeah, which is, it's very true. And, and it's a very current and salient concern that, that we all have. And we've hit this in a lot of, a lot of books, but so on, on the policy implications of all this, cause again, he's sharing all this social science research and, and you're kind of like, these are interesting fast facts, but you know, where is it leading? Again, I don't know that it really does lead anywhere, but what he does want to say is he says failures in public policy have been marked by a reliance on an overly simplistic view of human nature. When he's talking about human nature, he's not talking about the, you know, how the, founders looked at human nature or 
whatever he's he's thinking more in terms of like how we make these social connections especially at the level of the unconscious he says uh, public policy will continue to fail unless the new knowledge about our true makeup is integrated more fully into the world of public policy so that's kind of how he you know sets the stage for his thought now again we have to we have to go searching for it mm-hmm. but he does have a chapter that where he really dives in to his his political views and he says uh freedom should not be the ultimate end of politics the character of society should be the focus of politics so character is what he's really going to hit now again this is the last this is the last criticism i'm going to give but i'm just going to say in at the beginning of the book when he's setting the stage and everything it doesn't really say anything about character and character just kind of emerges later as uh, as something that's that seems to be important so uh, that's just kind of kind of strange but anyway the character of society should be the focus of political activity the health of social networks should be placed at the center of political thought so he's he's wanting to say that we shouldn't have this uh, overriding focus on freedom and liberty which uh, you know quite a few of our authors that's where they're coming from instead we should focus on engendering stronger character and better social networks. So he's, uh, he's, he's really kind of following the, the, tr- the trod path of, of George will, I think. Yeah. And I think he talks about how, how the left and the right both looked at problems in society over the past few generations. And, and a lot of them came up with economic explanations for everything. Mm-hmm. And we expect that from the left, especially the, the Marxist left, because that was Marx's thing is that how much money you had, your, your class was really, the thing that was most important, you should, you know, class struggle, that sort of thing. And, and Goldwater talked about how he saw conservatives as being less materialistic than the Marxists, even though we are portrayed as the ones who just want to make that money because we pay more attention to the spiritual and other goals in life compared to a really Marxist leftist who really is just about that, that class struggle, you know, and, but there are plenty of right-wing people who, since Goldwater's time have fallen into that trap too. You know, that's, I think what Brooks is addressing the idea that, you know, well, we've got freer markets, we've got, you know, better, lower taxes, you know, we're, we're making more money. We're a successful nation and that's great. It doesn't answer every single problem though. That That's, mm-hmm. that's to what you're saying. The, the world is complex. Human motivations are difficult to understand. And, you know, you'd think by reading a lot of political philosophers that, well, just increase freedom or increase money happiness is going to go up satisfaction society will be better and it's like it's some but it's not that one-to-one correlation that a lot of planning types wish it would be because mm-hmm. it's easy for the government to give money you know he he talks about the well-intentioned reformers of the 50s and 60s who were doing slum clearances and you know i mean some of them probably were not as well-intentioned as he thinks but some of them were, I think they, they saw these neighborhoods are all run down. They say, well, look, bulldoze all that, straighten out these crooked streets, put up some nice public housing, you know, make it easier for these people who are so poor and who I don't understand why they even want to live this way. And so they do all that. And, and what they did is wipe out a community of connections. Yeah. Wipe out yeah. a community that evolved naturally, that they weren't rich. They didn't have, you know, every city had a poor neighborhood, more than one poor neighborhood. And, and people lived in a way that, to the upper middle class was shocking, but it was a community. And then they tear that down. They put up these, you know, 
modern public housing tracts. And it's like, well, look, now you, now you got a better place. Roof doesn't leak. You know, the street's been paved. Put up a little playground for your kids and, you know, it's all good. And it's like, well, meanwhile, you've scattered people. You've got new people coming in, old people leaving. You know, it's, it's a mess. And it's all being done from outside. So nobody's really responsible for it the way they were for those little houses and rooming houses that used to populate such a place. Mm-hmm. So he says, he says, in short, government had tried to fortify material development, but it ended up weakening the social and emotional development that underpins it. And that's, that's that connection story. And yeah, it's, it's one that we've heard a few times in the course of this podcast. Yeah. And it's a, it, just another reminder, like, again, we have trade-offs in all this stuff. We, mm-hmm. we can fix your house, but they, you know, what are the, what are the ripple effects and, and we can provide more liberty and freedom, but how does that, and, and more individualism, but how does that, what ramifications does that have for our social connections? You know, what, what, what ripple effects and, and he, he calls for a kind of a new socialism where he says true socialism would put social life first, focus on common culture, core values of society expressed and self-confidently and reinforced people of different classes joined, uh, feel joined in a common enterprise. This is, this is a conversation we've had before too, as far as, you know, being, you know, team America, team together, you know, like mm-hmm. how, what's, what is our common culture? And, and right now, I mean, that, that's just, is, it's just coming apart at the seams. So he's like, you know, we need true socialism would, would include allowing in uh, immigrants who can success, successfully assimilate, you know, and become, become part of the common culture. He says conservatives emphasize that it is hard for the state to change culture and character, which is true. Liberals would argue that we still, in pragmatic ways, need to try. Both would speak the language of fraternity and inspire with a sense that we're all in this together. So, I mean, it gets a little cheesy. The central mm-hmm. conservative truth is that culture, not politics, determines success in society. I think that's a good insight. You know, it is. Yes. We we don't think that, uh, that you know, government levers are going to make much of any difference. And, uh, you know, I, again, I, you know, work in policy and we have focus on, on one policy or another, cause like, oh, this, this is the way that it's going to work. But even in the very best case scenario, it's going to work and make a marginal difference on the outskirts of the margins. You know, it's not, it's not really mm-hmm. going to make any difference, um, in, uh, any, you know, real solid, meaningful difference. All right, and so and so in contrast, so that's the cons- central conservative truth that culture, not politics, determines success in society. He says the central liberal truth is that politics can change culture and save it from itself. Now, I think I thought that was an interesting line. I I'd like him to develop that and tell us like exactly how politics can. I mean, yes, I think it's true that you know Trump has proven that politics can change culture a little bit. <laughs> sure, for uh, sure. But, uh, you know, and how and in what way, you know, or, you know, develop that a little bit. Tell us how or what, how, how can we move in a positive direction? I can see how certainly politics can, can drive us, drive a wedge and, and send us, uh, fling us off into, into a direction of, of negativity and, you know, a downward spiral. But how does, how can politics help, you know, improve? Yeah, I think it's more often like the economy where it, the government can affect the economy, but it usually does so by messing something up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's true with culture. I mean, you can a politician can encourage our worst impulses easily. 
because people just sometimes want permission to give in to those bad impulses. And if you have a great man saying, yeah, do it, you know, it, that's demagoguery. And that's, that's something that's happened since, I mean, if there's a Greek word for it, it's been happening a long time. So the original demagogues were what, in ancient Athens, I believe it's, it's because it's part of the human condition. I also wished he would have developed a little more. Well, what are the good things government can do? How can we do, can we do the same thing by encouraging, you know, tolerance and, and liberty and, you know, self-reliance? Is that possible? I mean, can a, can a government encourage self-reliance successfully? Your conservatives say a lot that, that Andrew Breitbart line of uh, politics is downstream of culture, which mm-hmm. for years I didn't know what that meant. I just heard people say it a lot, but I think that's what the, the point he's getting here at with that the conservative truth is that culture, not politics, determines society's success. And then our politics is really a reflection of our culture rather than the mm-hmm. other way around. But then he gives the opposite and, I, and I'm like, okay, great. Because um, there are things we would like, things we've talked about that have fallen away in culture. Let's rebuild them. Let's rebuild those little platoons that have kind of gotten atrophied by the welfare state and internet and deindustrialization and, and various whatever cause you, you know, people leaving religion, what all these different causes. All right, how do we reverse it? And it's like, well, we can. And I really wanted to hear the how. <laughs> because yeah, I, I mean, he, that's what we all want to hear, right? That's that's the answer we're looking for. Well, exactly. And he, he talks about decentralized power and I was like, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. But it was more of a drive-by. I mean, he just kind of mentioned decentralized power and community self-government create an active cooperative citizenry. Yeah. Okay. Let's, that's how you develop that. Downtown hubs, charter schools, active universities, community service programs, simple and fair tax policies. But then he just, then he just immediately concludes by saying state craft is inevitably soul craft, which again is a, is an echo of a, the George Will book that we read earlier in the season. Uh, season one. So he, he comes up with kind of an answer as you, you know, to your point, but it's just kind of a drive by without actually, you know, developing it at all. And that was a little frustrating to me. uh, Mm -hmm. He dives into kind of meritocracy and this, this was interesting too. And I just feel like some of these guys, unlike Charles Murray, they'll walk right up to the edge of making the point and then, but they don't quite do it because he says the cognitive age produces more subtle class distinction than under feudalism. And this again, goes back to the, the great sort, you know, of folks marrying smart people, marrying each other and, you know, uh, the, the college sorting system and everything. And then they have smarter kids and that's, that's heritable. He says U S has spent a trillion dollars. Okay. Actually, let me back up a sec. He says, the real, en- uh, the real engine of change is not globalization, it's cognitive overload, he calls it. Technology puts greater demands on human cognition. The questions are, does the individual have the capacity to understand the information? One, and two, does she have the training to exploit it? So what's, what's your native intelligence? And then basically, do you have an environment that allows you to that helps you to develop your skills and develop your abilities. People who possess unique mental abilities become prized. People with fungible mental traits become commodities. Now, I think that this really is a, uh, an issue. And in, mm-hmm. in even the presidential campaign, you got that dude, uh, Andrew Yang, um, right. who's, who's a little bit of a nut, but uh, mm-hmm. he's making some interesting points um, about the, about the future. Now, 
whether the robots really are going to overtake us. Maybe in a hundred years, I'm a little skeptical that that we're going to be completely overtaken. But certainly, many uh, many jobs will become automated. We're already seeing it at McDonald's. You know, they they have mm-hmm. probably half as many workers at our local McDonald's as they used to because you just type it into the machine, you know, into the touch screen now. And the same with the grocery store. You're, you, you're basically checking yourself out, which to me is, I mean, I just feel like it's such a blessed age where we don't have to wait for it. <laughs> Gosh, I really feel the opposite about that. Oh, really? I hate to self-checkout, but yeah. I love it because I can go at my pace. I can go at my speed. And these guys drive me crazy at how slow they are. Hmm. With, and they just dawdle and, oh, I need a, you know, uh, I, I need more quarters. So hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, you got to wait 20 minutes for them to go get quarters role anyway but uh but in the, this new cognitive age it creates this new uh, these new class distinctions something we've talked about with murray and, and in other places and so what's the kicker well you, the, he says the u.s has spent over a trillion dollars to reduce the achievement gap between white and black students but it's basically gone nowhere gap hasn't improved at all he says money can't solve the problem of inequality because it's not the crucial source i'm like okay what is the Great. crucial source he says some children are born into human capital development uh, atmospheres while others are born into disruptive atmospheres. And you're kind of like, yes, but you, you skirted the real problem. I mean, I'll, I mean, I don't know. So the real problem with uh, the, the cognitive age, right, is that, you know, some people are just not going to, they're not going to succeed in a, in a cognitive environment where, you know, beforehand you didn't need to, you didn't need to be super smart to, you know, run the ox, the oxen to, mm-hmm. you know, pull the plow, <laughs> you know, you just, you just woke up and did it. And being strong was a, a much more valued uh, capacity where today and the real threat of, of automation is that, you know, right now we already have these retail jobs that I would argue were never meant to feed a family. You know, I mean, I had a lot of retail jobs when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. where I come from, that's what we viewed it as, as teenager jobs. But uh, obviously, there are plenty of people now, particularly immigrants, who, who use these retail jobs as their the main source of income and uh, the main breadwinner money is uh, is from working at McDonald's or or Macy's or something like that. What is going to happen when those same folks, you know, they don't have the skills and the training, or maybe even say the cognitive ability, some of them, to get a a higher paying job or a more successful job? I mean, what's going to happen? when even these jobs are eliminated through automation. I mean, I think that's the real, the real threat of the future where he, he and he gets right up to the edge of that, but doesn't mm-hmm. quite say it. Instead, he, you know, he goes back to the same, you know, kind of blaming like, well, you didn't grow up in a good place. Well, yes, that, that is a factor for sure. But there's also the factor that some people are just not going to, e- even if they were born son of her daughter of very successful people, like if they themselves are not super smart, well, you know, they, they may be relegated to the job anyway. So yeah. And that's, that's a, an important point he's, that he could be making is, you know, in this age, being smart's always been useful for, for centuries. You know, there's always, you know, since we've had a civilization, there've been jobs for smart people, but there's also been jobs for strong people. There's also been jobs for brave people. There's been jobs for people with all different strengths. And I think, yeah, what he's getting at and maybe could be a little clearer about is, that in this age, you know, with so many of the jobs that where strength was the, the main requirement, now that a lot of those jobs are being done by machines, you know, it really makes us focus over much on education and intelligence. 
and not everyone's going to have it. Not everyone ever has had it. And, and, but it just used to be there more, there were more different paths. And yeah, I actually, I'd honestly rather read Andrew Yang's position on it. that you mentioned him, even though I think he's horribly wrong about, I mean, we've been hearing that automation is going to replace us all since they invented the first factory in the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that's been a running trend of, it's like Malthusians. They were, there's always every generation. There's somebody who thinks we're going to run out of food and we never yeah, do right. because we invent new things and we find better ways to live. And it's the same with the automation. It's like, we're going to run out of jobs. We don't though, because we make new jobs. And I mean, right now in America, unemployment's about as low as it can get. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's after all this deindustrialization and automation. So I think we are, you know, as we're always over-focused on the problems of our own time because those are the ones we can actually affect it makes us lose sight in the fact that everybody's had this problem and we always find a way around it um mm-hmm. so i mean i think yang's vision is a really dark vision of america even though he seems like a cheerful guy he sees it you know that a large swath of society is going to become useless to us and i can I, I hate that that vision so i was hoping brooks would have something the opposite to say you know because he's talking about the same problem you know, there's a, there are a lot of people who are not cut out to live in this postmodern society. Their brains right. aren't suited to the jobs that are being created now, or their temperament is such that they can't handle the crazy internet fueled society that we live in. Okay. But then what, you know, and that's, that's what I wanted to hear because, you know, you hear a lot of other people come bring back factories. Well, that, yeah, I mean, i I'm very sympathetic to that, but that's not a complete solution either. You know, he does make some good points that that was basically just sort of a lesser version of Charles Murray's book. You know, Mm -hmm. people who are successful have stuck to the old ways of marriage, work, education. Uh, They're reluctant to evangelize those positions the way people used to do. Um, But they, he says, over two thirds of middle class children are raised in intact two parent families. Well, less than a third of poor children are raised in them. Yeah. That's a huge point. That's a good thing we should be telling people. Like, hey, see, you can give your kids a better chance. I know maybe you're not really happy with your spouse or, or girlfriend or boyfriend right now, but there's a reason to maybe try and make it work. You know, he said another point that I think we should hear all the time. If there's no footnote, because I think he's used to writing for newspapers, because I would have loved to have read more about this. Mm-hmm. He said, if you married before having children, graduate from high school, and work full time, there is a ninety-eight percent chance you will not live in poverty. That's, that's a really astounding stat. Yeah. That's something that, if if I assume it's true, I I would I, like I said I would like to have dived into that a little more. But that's something we should be telling everybody every day. It's like you want. We talk about inequality and poverty. Here's the way out. Yep. You do yes. these three things, and uh, none of them is easy, but none of them is impossible. I mean, these are things that. You don't have to be these super smart, you know, top of society types to figure out. You can, you can do them. You do that, and of every hundred people who do that, only two of them are going to be poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, imagine a society where only two percent of the people were poor. That would be a utopia. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And yet we don't hear that enough. And Brooks says, "What well, giving bootstrap sermons isn't enough." And it's like that's true. You can't just go and yell at poor people to stop being poor and do things, do it the way I do it. You know, that, that message doesn't really resonate with people. So I was hoping what would come next is, well, what do we do then besides bootstrap sermons? Because 
that's got to be part of it is telling people the right way to live. But what comes next? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's when he gets into uh, Hamilton in a way I couldn't totally follow as as a solution. Yeah, so he uh, l- l- let me back up just a tiny bit before we get into Hamilton because he 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 basically concedes without telling us explicitly that you know we have these two factors in the in the current meritocratic like technical society to or they're the two main factors for success and that is you know number one is like what's your own cognitive ability what's what's your own native intelligence and he concedes without telling us to saying so explicitly but basically like we can't do anything about that so we're just gonna pretend like that's not a problem instead we're gonna focus right. on the other factor which is you know what are the types of things that we could change or you know might be under our control and that's where he gets into these questions of of building the right social capital atmosphere and, and having uh, all these this series of of achievements that that will lead to longer term success getting married before having children graduating from high school as you said working full time then you're not going to be in poverty and so then then it does kind of open up uh, the possibility for maybe some if if you want government to get involved you're kind of like okay well let's get involved get government involved on that front mm-hmm. so he does say government should help should step in and help people achieve the three things they need to enter the middle class they need to government needs to help them get married get a high school degree and a job and i thought that was a little bit revelatory you know kind of like okay yeah you're being honest here you know like okay let's rather than you know ch- chasing some you know, uh, universal pre-K, which has been shown not to work, you know, repeatedly over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Instead, you know, let's focus on how do we get people to get married and stay married? <laughs> uh, how do we get yep. people to complete high school, you know, and, and then that will help them uh, get a job. Okay. Well, these are actually areas uh, that could, you know, bear some fruit. Yeah. But I think it comes back to his original problem with how government has helped tried to help since you know in in since before we were born is that most of the things government can do is is just give money or withhold money yeah you know i mean that because that's what government has is money i mean they have power but we're also reluctant to say well we want people to get jobs so we're going to force you to take a job you know with the government or force a company to hire you like both of those sound like they're going to have a lot more problems than they solve so it, again, it comes back to, well, we could incentivize, you know, with tax but credits, you know, if you're married and it's like, well, okay. I mean, we've done some of that and we could at least reverse some of the negative reinforcement of the welfare state where it actually pushes people away from marriage and work. Mm-hmm. But there's all, again, I mean, that's, we've destroyed the old underpinnings through the welfare state and through statism generally. So is the state the method to rebuild them? I, I, it's hard. And we've read a few books that talk about it, but it, it's increasingly hard to understand how that could be. And nobody really seems to have a good answer on that. Well, so he says these, uh, this next, next generation of policies would have to help disadvantaged people to develop habits, knowledge, and mental traits they need to succeed. So we're not going to increase their, their IQ or their cognitive ability, but what we can do is teach them to get up in the morning and get to a job on time. Mm -hmm. It's really astounding how, you know, how, how many people in the world still can't do these basic things, you know, just if, if you show up at work and just do a half-assed job, 
you know, that enough is to, is to keep you around. That was so many people. Yeah, that was one of the great lessons of those kind of teenage jobs that you talked about. Right. See, exactly. When I worked at Sears, boy, like I was surprised how many of the people who were hired with me would get fired for just, you know, like not showing up. Uh, not just calling out one day because they're sick, but just, you know, just ghost. Don't show up for a week, you know, and when yeah. you do show up, maybe steal from the register, you know, stuff that you would never imagine <laughs> doing. I'm like, right, wow, right. somebody did that and thought that was a good idea. And guess what? He got fired. You know, so I, I, those are, yeah, those are things we could do better at teaching. But well, let's give an example. Like how, how do you develop uh, habits? Well, you don't give out you know, you, you do your best to not just give out free handouts. You know, if you're talking about, let's say, you know, welfare benefits, instead you, you impose some sort of work requirement, not because you're being vindictive and, uh, and, you know, mean spirited. Instead, you're saying like, Hey, look, if you're, if you're ever going to right now, you're in a bad way and we want to help you. And that's our society's made the decision. And I agree with that. We, we we're not going to leave you high and dry. Um, at the same time, you need to start to develop some skills, some abilities so that you can pull yourself out of this. Mm-hmm. And he, and he uses this great example called, um, of the KIPP academies. And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but we, we worked with some inner, inner city kids in DC, um, years ago. And a couple of them ended up get, getting into, um, one of the KIPP academies. And basically these, these are almost like military schools. They're, they're charter schools, but, but they are very strict. And uh, a couple of gr- the girls that, that we worked with, you know, went to these schools inmates, it made a lot of difference, at least in their day to day life. And it, and it was the first kind of wake up call of like, oh, this is how you get somewhere on time. Oh, this is how you, you know, have this no nonsense. Like we're that, you know, the dog didn't eat your homework instead. Now you're going to do a hundred pushups or what, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that type of stuff, some families just instill that. And, and, you know, we are, we are do our best. I'm not saying we're you know, models of this, but having two parent households, you're more likely to have, you know, set boundaries for kids and help them to understand limitations and, and set expectations and force them to meet those expectations and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, to me, like every single government program should have elements of this, you know, you need to be learning skills. We're not just going to give you money because you need the money right now. And we think that we want to help and that's, uh, and we're not going to, you know, complain about that, but at the same time, there needs to be a step number two and a step number three. And where are you in five years? Are you still in the same spot five years from now? You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who are kind of, you know, have, uh, have some bad luck or, or whatever. And we, we absolutely want to help, but it, what we need to do is move this out of the lifestyle zone and into mm-hmm. a zone of sort of like, this is, this is temporary and this is going to help me get back on my feet. And, Oh, that's what I needed to do. I didn't really realize that, you know, yeah, if I just graduated from high school at the time, I just thought I thought I wanted to hang out with my you know friends and and smoke weed. But now I can see like if I can just get that what is it GD, mm-hmm. uh, then GED, then we can then you know maybe I can get this other job or something like that. Like teach some skills that that's the direction. I, I yeah, that's he's be- kind of saying that. Whatever, that's a better explanation of work requirements than you usually hear either. You know, because they do often sound like. Uh, either vindictive or just irrelevant and yeah work as training for future work is is probably a better way we could be selling that because it's true yeah do you if you're just giving money the only thing you're teaching is dependency so i mean if you give money with 
and but you're also teaching a skill or some sort of self-reliance that it that could be a way and that's what he with this kind of in between left and right that he talks about which he ascribes to uh the spirit of alexander hamilton and, and abe lincoln and teddy roosevelt was one that he says he believes liberals sought more equality and conservatives sought more liberty but the hamiltonians believed in limited but energetic government to enhance social mobility they talked about hamilton wanting to create a nation where young, ambitious people like him could make full use of their talents. That's one way to do it. Yeah. Is maybe to sort of re reintroduce these values that have faded away. But then he kind of undermines his whole Hamiltonian argument by saying that Hamilton didn't need to teach people how to act because he could assume a, a level of social and moral capital because the government yeah, hadn't yeah. messed it all up yet. And modern society <laughs> and social media and everything else that we want to blame hadn't messed it all up yet. It's like, yeah, okay, well then, well then why are we talking about it? Because you've, you've made yeah, this whole yeah, point yeah. about this third way, sort of, uh, not, not liberal, not conservative, kind of straddles the divide. And it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> but they had this one massive advantage that we don't have. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. So, so what? He, he doubles back on his points in several places. And one in particular that just drove, made me laugh is he's, he's talking about, you know, having these certain type of home environments, that's what we need in order for kids to succeed. But then in another place, he says, what parents do really doesn't, the social research shows that what, what parents do doesn't really matter that much <laughs> as long as they're just good enough. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, some of this stuff we're just doing to feel good about ourselves. So we can pat ourselves on the back to say like, Hey, I know it doesn't work, but at least we're doing something, you know I mean? Yeah. That's kind of, all right. What's our final thoughts? What do you got? Well, I guess I would just, re- it, this book feels like it was written by a New York Times columnist because it's, <laughs> it's got some, it, it gestures towards some good ideas, it hints at things, but it doesn't really give us the, the deep data that you'd expect from a full length book. It doesn't give us the, the footnotes that you'd expect from a work of social science that, you know, somebody interested could say, oh, that's interesting. Let me. Let me read more about that study. Maybe we can, I can figure something out about. It. No, it's it's all just it reads. Yeah, it's 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 in in a way unserious. It's sort of a boiled down Charles Murray and and some of the other people that we've read who did a better job at it. Now, maybe introducing those ideas to a mass market is good. I mean, this was a New York Times bestseller, so yeah, people who weren't reading Murray are reading this. So maybe it, maybe it pulls people in in that way. Um, Prime Minister David Cameron was very impressed by this book and told his whole cabinet to read it. Hmm, yeah, right. So it's it maybe is helping. It maybe Brooks is serving well as a popularizer here, but I don't see really enough of the original ideas or any of the original solutions to really give us a blueprint of where we where we've been and where we're going. But mm-hmm. so it not bad, but I don't. I don't know that I would recommend it. I agree with all that. That's basically how I feel. I, I've been a fan of David Brooks, not because I love everything he says, but I, I like, he's interested in a lot of the same things that I'm interested in. You know, he's, he's, he's always writing about culture and morality and ethics, you know, and um, social capital type stuff in his columns. And that interests me. And I, you know, follow along this, this was just kind of a weird vehicle. And, um, 
I guess part of the reason that we're not, we feel, you know, feel so unfulfilled after reading this is they're just, these are, these questions are just so tough. And so we've had author after author kind of identify the problems and identify kind of the same problems without really much solutions. And, Mm -hmm. and that's tough. And I guess that's kind of a reflection of, for, you know, conservatism in general, it's just kind of like some of these problems, you know, you just, maybe they're not solvable. You just have to hope that it moves in a certain direction because, you know, on the, on the left, their answer is always, let's, let's get the government involved and let's just spend a bunch of money. And did it make any difference? Well, no, but at least we did something, Yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and I, and to your point, like he's, he's trying to straddle both of those worlds. It's kind of like, he's telling us explicitly, it's not going to make much difference, but then he's more or less saying, mm, well, let's do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it just reminds me, he, he recently had this calm where he comes out in support of reparations, which, you know, obviously I think is completely off the reservation, but, but he, he says it almost verbatim that I don't think this is going to do anything. And it's not it's probably not worth much. And for a hundred reasons, it's a bad idea, but you know, just for compassion at stake to show we're doing something, let's just, I think we should do it. <laughs> like that was his unsatisfying a column, you know, and this mm-hmm. book has a lot, I think a lot of that too. All right. So that's it for David Brooks. Next time, the next two episodes, we are going to dive uh, head first into the Federalist Papers. That's uh, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, published in 1788. And we've, uh, we've already found there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I hadn't really read much since college. Uh, and even in there, I didn't, hadn't read much. So much of this is new and I'm just having a fun time seeing how much good, good philosophy is found in there. So, all right, that's it this time. Catch us next time.